Hello, and welcome to the Raising Family podcast brought to you by thefamilyproclamation.org. I'm David Steele. I'm Linda Hill. And I'm Brent Anderson. In this podcast, we'll explore both ancient and modern scripture, as well as quotes from living prophets. We'll also discuss peer-reviewed scientific research that complements and confirms the clear, repeated, united teachings of the prophets. Thank you for subscribing and joining us as we share stories that we hope will help bring the family of proclamation to the world into your world. Hello and welcome to the Raising Family Podcast. I'm your host, David Steele, and today I've got an excellent guest with us. We're super excited to have him. Uh, it's Benjamin Pacini. Um, so Benjamin is a husband, father of four, and a faculty member at BYU-Idaho in elementary education. Um, majored in economics at BYU and earned a master's degree in education and, and administration from John Hopkins University. Um, and after that, served as a teacher and administrator in Baltimore City and Washington, D.C. for about 10 years and is currently pursuing a doctorate in education leadership from BYU. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and he's also written articles for Public Square Magazine and hosts his own podcast called Radical Civility. Um, and I've had a chance to listen to several of those, and that's an excellent podcast. Uh, we recommend going, popping over there and listening to that. Um, there's some really interesting topics that they talk about over there. Um, so we're just grateful to have you, Benjamin. Um, we think this will be super great. It's kind of funny where the topic for today is, uh, we're talking about truth, um, and kind of truth from the perspective of today's, uh, young adults, um, and, you know, and also adults. Um, but it's kind of funny that you, you actually were just, um, asked to speak on a very similar topic, um, uh, at a, at a super Saturday, um, so what what was that about, and and did that did that add any thoughts to to your feelings about truth? Well, it was it was actually really interesting because it was um, a, a fellow in my ward reached out to me, and it was the same night as tonight. So I was thinking I need to I need to rearrange this. This isn't going to work. And I said, "What's the topic?" And he said, "Well, um, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. But what we really want you to do is kind of go in the direction um, that you feel led to. And we're thinking of you know all of these things that our youth are getting messages about." but are not things that we really want them to, to, to dive into that are not things. And I said, Oh, okay. Yeah. This sounds familiar. Um, and so I, I just finished, it was like a 20, 25 minute presentation and I had a good time. I hope they did too. Um, but this is a really important one to me. I think, I think, uh, now is the time we, we it's been described as a post truth moment and that terrifies me. Um, and I think there's good reasons for us to be asking some really interesting questions about, about truth in particular. Wow. That's really cool. Um, I, I hadn't heard that before, a post-truth. Um, on the familyproclamation.org, there's a study that's listed where this was in 2020. It was in mid-2020 they did this study. I think it was like a couple thousand U.S. teens and young adults aged 13 to 21, and they gave them a list of questions. And in the study found that 31% of teens and young adults strongly agree that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. And another 43% said that they somewhat agree that what's morally right and wrong changes over time. Um, and I think that there was only 10% that strongly agreed that truth uh, doesn't change uh, regardless of what happens in the world, that it stays the same. Um, and so that was kind of an alarming study uh, a little bit that kind of showed kind of where these attitudes of how people look at truth, uh, specifically teens and young adults. And so maybe what are your thoughts on that and how have you seen that in your I mean, you you know, you did some stuff with middle school where you taught, and you also did some administration where you dealt a lot with middle school, and then now um, teaching, you know, young adults in their, you know, late teens and 20s. Um, just what are your thoughts on that that study, and how have you seen kind of, have you seen that, or have you kind of seen differently than that? So there's, there's a couple of things going on there. So what's interesting is if you were to ask them, does truth change over time, I'll bet that you would get a different but similar response. And I think that this is this is kind of the post-truthers winning, right? And I I, I don't mean to, right. to to lump everybody together like that because there are valid points here. So, for example, um, do different cultures have different contexts of right and wrong? Of course they do. Like we know that that's that's not a big deal. Do we know that um, you know doing things today is different from doing things in the 1800s or the 1200s or the 500s? Of course, right? We, we, everybody can agree with that. Mm -hmm. 
But if your takeaway from history is that morality is completely different depending on the the, the year in which you live, I, that's not my read, right? One of the things that I love about right. Jonathan Haidt's work is that he's gone around to lots of different countries and lots of different places. Now, he obviously can't go back to, to 580 um, or 3000 BC, but he's found that there are moral foundations in all of these countries. And there's five of them. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. There's, um, there's justice. So one of them is, are you treating other people in a way that is considered fair? Um, one of them is um, loyalty to authority, right? Like uh, some level of, of trusting authority and, and those kinds of things. One of them is compassion. Mm-hmm. So you can go to any different country you want to, and they all have these five moral foundations. Now, I find that incredibly compelling. There's a universal set of things that we all believe in, no matter what country we're from, no matter what culture we're from. That to me is 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 really, really interesting. That's not the story that folks are saying because we we live in this yeah. very like nuancy time of like, oh, well, it all really depends. I'm sorry, there are there are um no societies in which murder is 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 generally viewed as a good thing. And people will say, Well, I don't know about that. I listen, if you're on Twitter, you can do that thing where somebody says something that's like the sky is blue, and they'll be like, Well, technically, that's only because listen, stop. Right? Like, no, like I get right. that there's nuance, okay? Everybody can be nuanced, Captain Nuance sometimes. I'm not Jonathan Haidt. I'm not a, a moral philosopher or, or a moral psychologist. My impression, though, is that we have so much more in common in terms of our morality across time and also across um, cultures and everything else. Um, and by the way, I also happen to think that morality isn't something that we invented. It's something that comes from an external source. And so, of course, I think, yeah. you know, the law of Moses is different from what we do today. I'm, I'm very open to that. That doesn't mean that there aren't some hard truths that exist across time that are that are worth being aware of. And in fact, uh, you know, if if I'm an atheist, I look at religion as as a tradition, something that's passed on. Well, actually, um, I'm not an atheist, but but if I if I want to speak to my atheist friends, one of the things I would say is I want you to hit pause on the impulse to throw out all of that tradition, because oftentimes tradition is a way of passing on things that we we may not always want to hear. And that there's some real value and something real. And, and, and that doesn't mean that tradition should rule us. Sometimes we need to look at it and, and, and discard something that's foolish. I agree with that. Um, but I think that, um, this idea of truth, and it's interesting because you asked about truth and then, and then gave a moral question, you know, is right and wrong different mm-hmm. today than it has been in the past? Um, I think in both of those cases, um, that there are, there are, there are things that we need to, um, grapple with. Um, that do sometimes change. Yeah. I also am very comfortable saying, um, you know, from a gospel perspective, um, the way to happiness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those things have not changed. Um, and that the foundations of those things are, you know, the foundations of stable countries is healthy families. Um, I don't, I, I don't see that being controversial. I think that that's historically true. Yeah, for sure. And maybe diving in a little bit to, um, I want to talk a little bit about this article that you wrote that you are safe in my classroom for publicsquaremag.org. You know, you talk about safety, but one of the main headings is, is truth. You talk about truth, belonging, and then you have a, a stint where you talk about the pride flags and kind of symbolism and, and how that all plays in. So how have you seen in working with young adults? I mean, how do you navigate that line between truth and compassion? I feel like there's been a lot of hang up, you know, between truth and compassion where it's like, well, I don't believe something. And does that mean that everybody that does believe that I am now, I now, you know, I'm a danger to them or, or they're in danger in my presence because I don't endorse their belief. Um, just what have you seen in, in dealing with young adults and how, how to kind of navigate truth versus compassion? That's a fantastic question. So I'm going to, I'm going to try not to go in six directions. As you can tell, I like to talk. So, um, hope, hopefully I'll the editor in as many directions as you can reduce <laughs> this down to, to, to something that's intelligible. <laughs> so I, one of the projects I'm working on is a, is a project on masculinity and it started around this idea of toxic masculinity. And, um, I was talking to a friend about it. I said, you know, I, I've noticed like if I throw out a word to you, so if I throw out, for example, discipline, I say, well, do you think that's male or female? Uh, the first thing people will say is, oh, that's gross. That's sex. I don't want to. And I said, okay, that's fine. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying what comes to your mind? Is that more of a male attribute or more of a female attribute? Kind of culturally, let me put it that way, right? I'm not saying that it should be. And then people go, oh, well, I guess in the culture, that's more depicted as a male thing. And I said, okay, what about compassion? Oh, compassion is very much a female thing. I said, great, no problem. Now make a list of those in your head. 
and look at all of the male attributes and look at all the female attributes. And I think that what you'll find is societally, all of the female attributes are good things. So creativity, compassion, uh, mercy, uh, nurturing, all of those are viewed very positively right now. Right. And then when you look at most of the male traits, so authority and, um, you know, um, moral integrity and moral accountability and, um, and, and you go down that list, um, even courage and, and boldness and, and, and bravery and things like that. You look at both of those, and what you will find is right now, there's been a big swing of the pendulum away from a lot of those stereotypically male traits, right? And I want to clarify, I really do think right. they're stereotypical, and we got to be careful. My argument is not that we need to go back to the 1950s, where all the male traits are good, and, you know, men need to be manly men. That's, a, that's not what I'm into. What I am into is I think that we've gotten to a place where compassion rules, and it is unchecked by the other virtues. So, as an example of this... Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that one of the ways to look at it is instead of saying is compassion good, the answer is always yes. Um, balance all of your virtues against another competing virtue to see where the right place to come out on this. Is. So you mentioned um, um, a willingness to stand up for truth versus compassion. I think that's a great example. I am not super concerned if one person lands over here and the other person lands over there, as long as they are trying to balance both of those. And we have obligations in the direction of truth. And we also have obligations in the direction of compassion. And uh, here's my specific example. I have some friends who feel very strongly that they need to use the pronouns that the other person um, requests. I also have friends who feel very strongly that they are not going to use the pronouns that another person suggests um, or expects or, or, or even demands, right? Right. And I have listened to my friends and I am the least popular person around because I don't really, you know, I, I, it's never really been an issue for me. Uh, I was a public school teacher and as a public school teacher, I felt like I was expected to use their pronouns and it also wasn't a big deal to me. Um, I don't think that's really the central part of the fight, but I respect people who have both of those different takes. What I can tell you is I have people on both sides of that. And I feel very good about anybody who is trying to grapple with what's the best way to do this. As a Latter-day Saint, if I'm using somebody else's pronouns, am I, am I communicating the wrong thing? Am I communicating that I accept something that I really shouldn't? Or is it just a matter of politeness? Is it a matter of inclusion? And I think both of those have some weight and that, that that's a, that's a complicated grapple. Um, <clears throat> so. A friend of mine pointed out, though, and I, I think this is also, you know, if it's just inclusion, I'm on board for inclusion. That's great. Now, now let's swing back to the other side. A friend of mine pointed out, though, that I'm also communicating that I agree with the way that you see yourself. And I may not. And that may not be something that I that I'm OK with or that I agree with or, or that I think that you are that thing. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's messy. That's hard. That's complicated. I don't think that the answer is you need to swing way out here um, to compassion, nor is it you need to swing way out here um, to truth telling and boldness and, and and standing for truth. I think taking the two virtues and saying, I don't know where I'm going to perfectly fall, but I want to try and balance both of those. Now, somebody listening to this who's not a Latter-day Saint may say, well, why don't you just be inclusive? You, you got to understand, for me, this is also an integrity issue. I believe certain things about gender. I believe certain things about how we are created. In, in Genesis, it says that we were, that God created them male and female in the image of God made he them. Now, I am not a biblical scholar. So if I get this wrong, please say something in the comments. He talks about how we're made in the image of God in the same sentence or in the same verse as when he talks about our gender. My impression is not that we are somehow metaphorically in the image of God or, or, or that we look like God. Specifically, he's talking about how we were made in the same manner, in the same pattern as the gods were, male and female, divided along those lines. This is not a small deal to me. This is a very, very big deal to me. And so I'm happy to be kind and inclusive and welcoming and everything that I can be. But there is a point at which I have to say, listen, that doesn't extend to me believing things that I don't believe. Right. So the pride flag example is another one. <clears throat> I see a lot of Latter-day Saints who say the pride flag is just about welcoming and, and inclusion. And I say, hey, if that's what it is, that's cool. I'm not judging Latter-day Saints who decide to use it. My article was about me. And as I sat down and I thought about the pride flag and what it means and what it means for me, when I was in the middle, when I was teaching in the middle school, I honestly thought about because people knew I was LDS. I'm a very, very strong social conservative. I thought long and hard and nearly actually put up a pride flag because I specifically wanted those students to know. I don't think they want to know if I believe God is a man and married to a woman. That's not what they're asking. An eighth grade student coming into my office wants to know if I'm going to... Um, suspend them even though they're innocent just for being gay, right? Or or, or for right. identifying as trans. They want to know if they're safe and if I'm going to treat them respectfully. That's something that I feel very confident. I can say, hey, whoever you are, you are welcome in my space. And I'm going to be as, as kind and careful and thoughtful as I can to you. I'm not going to discriminate in any way that I possibly can. 
I think that's really, really important. At the same time, I'm now a college professor on the campus of BYU-Idaho. It's a personal decision, but I cannot imagine putting up a pride. If I put one up at BYU-Idaho specifically, that carries a different message. That, that says something a little bit different. And again, I, I, I have friends who, who have made other decisions at church schools. That's fine. I respect that decision. That's yours. That's not mine. But for myself, when I sat down and I said, I've got compassion on the one side and I've got, I've got integrity on the other, I knew that I couldn't put up a pride flag, that it didn't feel right to me. Yeah. And if it does for you, cool. No problem. That, that, that's your personal call. I felt like I had to be able to draw a line and say, there's a point at which it feels more like advocacy than it does like, um, than like, than, than merely just compassion. And I think part of what's happened with this, this compassion issue is that we've, some people have hijacked and, and I, I don't say that intentionally. I don't, I think there are some people who have, but most people are just saying, Hey, why can't you, why is it such a big deal? Why can't you just be compassionate? Because it's always a trade-off. It's always two virtues that are pitted against each other. And that's when things get really, really tough, right? Um, by the way, our political issues, the ones that push all of the buttons and make all of the, mm -hmm. the, the, the cultural pressure points explode, they're always um, the same kind of values pitted against each other. So for example, um, looking at student loan forgiveness, I'm in higher education. I feel very strongly about this. It's compassion versus wisdom. It's compassion versus you need to provide for yourself and self-sufficiency. And those get people really riled up. Right. And so this yeah. is a perfect example again, where listen, I'm not saying that I know the right answer, but what I am saying is if you're all compassion and you think that the other people are just full of it, you're not paying attention to the two competing virtues. If you think people just need to be responsible, what the heck, man, you haven't heard some of the stories that I've heard about students who, who really do deserve a lot of help, who get bogus degrees that aren't worth very much. They're saddled with a ton of debt. The colleges are often the ones doing this. On the other extreme, I'm very strongly in favor of, um, of, um, a lot less student loan debt and a lot more student uh, or college reform. And I think all of those are acceptable parts of the discussion, but you have to keep both of the virtues involved. Um, right. And so whether you call them the masculine feminine virtues, or if you just look at any question that's really hot right now and say, okay, what are the two values involved? Can I articulate this in a way where everybody involved sees that there's two competing values? That I think is part of the ticket to, to getting through this a little bit better. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think maybe, I mean, Let's say we have, you know, some young adults that are listening to this podcast um, that maybe they attend BYU or BYU-Idaho and they're uh, active members of the church, but maybe they're struggling with this, this idea that truth can be individual, that truth is, what's true for you is true, maybe not for me, but it's, but it can still be truth. And maybe I have started to feel like a little bit of animosity towards the church um, because they kind of view it as being not very compassionate in that way, where it says that, you know, truth has to be truth for everyone. Um, what would you say to people that are kind of in that scenario where they kind of are starting to feel like and accept, uh, you know, the, the notion that truth can be individual? So that's, that's a fascinating one. Um, I, again, I only have about six thoughts. So Jeff Thane is a friend of mine. He's, he's psychology faculty here at BYUI. And, um, he did, he's done some really interesting work on something called moral intuitions. So this is in, in, in basic form. Um, if I'm trying to get you to buy my toothbrush and I'm a toothbrush salesman, I have two options. I can give you the statistics on why it's a better toothbrush, or I can pay a bunch of money for a celebrity to use that toothbrush on camera. And as it turns out, we human beings are, are highly rational, except for when we're not. And we actually love it when it's the um, celebrity who does this thing. And that's because we are wired in certain ways. Um, the moral intuition of seeing somebody we like using the toothbrush is more powerful than the rational facts. So the first thing that I want people to understand is we are not wired for truth. We are wired to be able to apprehend truth, but it is a process and it is a very costly process. Historically speaking, people have died over this idea of does truth even exist and what is it and is it worth fighting for? To which my answer is a wholehearted yes. Many of the, the great things that have happened in the United States, I think, um, we, we often look back on it and say, oh, well, it was because of our politics or it was because of this. I think a lot of it was because of enlightenment rationalism. This idea that God has given us a brain that is able to find truth and it is dear and precious and really hard, by the way. It is not easy to find truth. And so when it is found, we need to have the humility and the gratitude to say, wow, 
Somebody researched this, somebody found this, somebody tested, somebody went to the edge of, of human knowledge and leapt over in order to find what was next. And those sacrifices deserve our, our, our humility and our gratitude. So <clears throat> in the first place, I think that that to me is bedrock. The truth exists. Um, and by the way, the, the second step is truth sometimes is going to argue with you. And only an idiot is going to argue with truth. If you have not had the experience of having a professor tell you that you were completely wrong about something, I would urge you to go and find a professor and have them chew you out. I think it is so healthy. Like we all need yeah. it in our lives. So here's, here's the example I use in my class. Um, I, on, on day one, I, I give everybody a learning styles quiz. Um, this is one of my favorite soapboxes. So they fill out the quiz and it says, you're a visual learner or you're a kinesthetic learner or you're, you're an oral learner or a reading and writing learner. And they go, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's totally me. And I say, hey, good, 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 good job. I'm, I'm so glad that you have that. I do have one little note. It's all fake. It's made up. There is no such thing as learning styles. I don't know who taught you this, but it's a made up thing. In fact, let's do another one. Here's, here's one that's even, even closer to home. So David, I, I, I am going to go out on a limb and assume that you know your primary music. So we're going to play a little game of fill in the blank. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Give said the little. Stream. Give, oh, give, give, oh, give, give, said the little stream as it hurried down the hill or on its way. I can't remember which verse is which. I'm small, I know, but wherever I go, the huh? grass grows greener still. Good, good, good. There's one problem. It doesn't say grass. Does it not? You know something that's not true. Did you know that? <laughs> Now, here's the funny thing. I'm looking at it right here on my computer screen. They did a survey and they asked 146 people, 120 of them, that's 82%, said that it was grass. And only 23 said that it was fields. But it's totally fields. And by the way, it's funny because because Peggy, um, Peggy Worthen, I shouldn't say Peggy, like we're on a first name basis, right? <laughs> Me and Peggy. Peggy Worthen does this really interesting thing where she goes, I heard it and I thought it must be wrong. So I went through and looked at all of the old versions. And I said, surely it, it, it's probably that it used to be grass and then they changed it um, because it, it's right. better to have, you know, something new. It's always been fields. It is today. It has been in wow. every version that they've ever had. This is something called word replacement. It's really interesting. Now, here's my point with all of this. Truth is truth. I don't care what you like. I don't care if you think that the right word is grass. I don't even mind. I think grass sounds better. It, I'm still right. wrong. It doesn't matter. Right. So the, the first thing that I would say is have, have the humility to be corrected by truth. Now, the next thing that I'm going to say is there's always nuance. Nuance is really good. Let me tell you about a, a case where I tried to use nuance to get my way. So I was a, a, an economics student uh, at BYU, and in, in, uh, this was around 2005-ish, 2004. Um, and my professor was an economics professor, and he was talking about how immigration is good for the economy. And I had a very complicated, convoluted theory as to why he was wrong. And I thought about it because, you know, I, I grew up and my family was, was, was pretty stereotypically conservative. And, you know, that can't be, you know, I'm sorry, that just doesn't jibe with my politics. And so obviously he's wrong. So I walk up to him afterwards and it had to do with remittances. And, you know, if you've got a country in Mexico and they're sending, or if you've got a, a family in Mexico and they're sending money over to the United States and, and the United States is sending money back, it's going to create this, this two-tiered, you know, I had this very complex reason. So I said, professor, do you mind if I, if I explain something? He said, yeah, go ahead. So I started explaining this whole thing. He stops me about 10 seconds in and he goes, you clearly have not wrestled with the economics literature on this. You are wrong. Well, give it to you straight. Super direct. And, 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 and then he literally looked at the next person in line and said, hey, what's up? Like, not only did he tell me I was wrong, <laughs> he didn't continue. He said, no. And, and no, in fact, I remember he said one other thing. He said, the, the, the consensus of economists who've studied this is against you. And the weight of the research literature is against you. That was it. And I was trying to get it. And, and this to me is very important. There are still good reasons to oppose illegal immigration. That's fine. We can be friends. I, I disagree with you. He, he had a very deep impact right. on me because I realized how wrong I was. Mm -hmm. And then I realized if I'm wrong about, about the science of immigration, maybe I'm wrong about the politics of immigration too. If you haven't right. been regularly embarrassed at the hands of truth, then you need to get to know truth better. Because humility is part of the, 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 the way that we get there. If a friend of mine is saying, here's, here's another story from my BYU days real quick. Um, 
we were using this nuance formula to get to to get out of some science class uh, stuff that we we didn't want to do. The professor was saying, "Well, remember, there's no friction in our experiment, and you know, assume that we're at sea level." And he was doing this big thing and uh, some kind of experiment in, in in person. And one of the students just goes, "Professor, you're always throwing those assumptions in there. I mean, how much good is this science anyway?" I mean, if you have to keep saying there's no friction and assume sea level and assume the right altitude and all this stuff, I mean, come on, this is silly. This isn't even really science. It's just a classroom experiment. And he was kind of, he was very, he was very polite. I'm, I'm probably being a little bit more mocking, but he, he was asking a serious question. If all of this nuance always has to be uh, erased, how much good does science really do us? And the professor laughed, looked up and he said, you do realize that the bomb worked, right? <laughs> <laughs> And his point was the nuclear bomb, like it works. Right. And I've never forgotten. You do realize the bomb works, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. there is nuance. Yes, there is. There are things that change over time. Yes, there are different perspectives on truth. I'm, I'm even open to that. But if you think that that nuance means that truth is up to the individual, you are simply mistaken. Right. Gravity does not bend based on your opinions of it. Right. Um, frankly, I don't think that politics does. I actually think there is a right and wrong in politics. I'm very respectful of those I disagree with, but I think that there are, it it was, it was interesting. I was in Utah. I won't mention which bill it was. I, I, I happened to be on the Hill for the legislature and people made a bunch of arguments that I happened to know were factually incorrect in order to advance a piece of legislation that made them feel good. This is actually quite common. And so I, I think being able to say there is in fact a right and wrong, is very, very important for us these days. Um, anyway, that, that, that was four or five tangents. I have about 10 more, but hopefully that gives you an idea. If somebody comes to you and says, well, the church needs to be more compassionate. And then I respond with, hey, truth is really important too. And they say, well, hold on, whose truth are we talking about? My answer is actually, if what we're talking about is my truth, what we're actually talking about is my opinion or my perspective. And those are valid things, but they are not truth. Yeah. Truth is by definition, not mine or yours. It It is by definition something that has to be able to come and beat me over the head with it um, and get me to change my mind, or it's not worth seeking in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And what would you say to parents? I think there's there's probably a lot of a lot of things against uh, families and, and parents um, in terms of this being taught in general, um, kind of as we as we saw with that. That study um, about people thinking that, that morality changes depending on society, which isn't, I mean, the, the question wasn't directly about truth, but it was about, uh, you know, moral right and wrong. I'm just curious as to what, if you have any advice or anything that you would say to parents in terms of how to help your family to understand the, the, the principle of absolute truth um, and how to kind of be an instigator of of allowing your children to realize and, and grow up learning that truth is truth and that there's not really, uh, you know, there are opinions and different things that, that get passed off as truth. Yeah. So I, I have two thoughts. Um, the, the first one is, um, if you're trying to pass along knowledge, um, then give them a textbook. If you're trying to pass along values, then tell them stories. This is something that I've learned from Carol Rice. She isn't the only one, but I think she is magnificent at this. Um, mm-hmm. And she actually helped me with, with this heroic masculinity piece. And I really started to think about it in terms of stories. If you want your children to appreciate truth, there's a certain amount of preaching that can be good. You should preach at your kids. I am actually a big fan of more preaching. But if you want it to connect, tell the stories of those who gave their lives for truth. And I don't just mean religious figures. I, I can get into heroes in a minute, but and there are plenty. I was raised on the scientists and the stories of scientists who gave their lives for truth. I have always felt um, that science and technology were gifts from God that allow us to have a better life and a better world. And I still feel that way today. So I would, I would actively try to find stories of people who are innovators and inventors and scientists who put their reputation or their life sometimes on the lines. Um, I think that there are, you know, there are certainly places where I disagree with Carl Sagan, but he is a hero of mine. Um, I think he is, he is brilliant yeah. and he really was willing to, to say things that were, were very unpopular, including things against God and religion. And that's okay. He and I can disagree. Um, I think it is very, very important that we tell those stories. Um, the second thing I would say though, um, it has been my experience that we focus a lot on getting our kids to believe the right things. And, and, and maybe that's the right thing. Um, 
I don't know that we are, my experience as a faculty member at BYU-Idaho, I don't know that we spend enough time teaching our youth about what they need to not believe. Okay. Um, tonight at my little Super Saturday, my my title was was probably a little bit too edgy. Um, it was the challenge to not believe, um, and the whole <laughs> that's and I I started out by saying I just want to be really clear. You should believe a lot of things. There are important things you need to have that you believe that will make your life better. But today I am here to make sure that you understand the the holy art of skepticism. The importance of going through life and being able to discern between truth and error. Because what I'm seeing with our youth right now is that they're actually pretty good at finding truth. The problem is that they see the the, the error right next to it and they gobble it up just as happily. That is the piece. And I think that that's the part of my my essay that really resonated with people to the extent that it did. Um, I think a lot of people were feeling torn between truth and compassion. And I said, you can do both actually. And it's actually pretty easy to do both. And I think that was because I was a public school teacher where I had to use, use, um, pronoun. I had to, I, I just assumed that it was the right way to go as a public school employee. So I always yeah. use pronouns and I also had my private beliefs. And if people asked me, I, I, I was not going to apologize for those. And it was never, uh, I never had to choose between being a disciple of Christ on the one side or a disciple of Christ on the other. Right. I was always able to, to manage to do both. So I think it's very important that you teach your children to be skeptical, to understand, and in particular, skeptical of yourself, right? Um, skeptical of your own beliefs. Um, you know, one, one of the things I, I, I mentioned tonight just in passing was cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most, if not the most, um, effective interventions for many of our mental health maladies. So um, anxiety, depression, you know, bipolar disorder, uh, um, a lot of the borderline personality disorder I saw today. I didn't know that um, and, until I looked it up today. Um, some studies say it's as effective as some of our pharma- pharmacology. Um, some have even found that it's more effective than our pharmacology. And effectively what CBT is, is questioning your own thoughts and interrogating whether they're telling you the truth. I find that really provocative. Mm-hmm. Where basically what you're doing is saying, I just had this thought. So the example I like to give is, it's the middle of the night, you hear a creak and you go, well, that noise tells me something. It's been a good run, but I'm about to die. The murderer's here. I hope my family remembers me fondly, right? We all feel this. This is very normal. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I felt that. And the reason why we do this is because 6,000 years ago, when our ancestors were in caves or, or whatever it was, um, that shadow in the distance could have been a lion. And we needed to run right away. And it was better for us to run and survive, even if it wasn't actually that dangerous. Now, today, I have the same kind of um, heart heart alarm kind of sense when I'm actually looking at a chair that has my clothes on top of it that I probably should have just put away in the first place, right? Um, the reason why we're wired that way, uh, the, the, the way that I said it tonight that I think was valuable is we're not wired for truth. We're wired for survival. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we see bigger threats than than we ought to. And it's okay. I'm not saying that we can't find truth. We can. We can. We can get there. But it takes some deliberate rewiring, right? Um, another example is if you sit down to eat food, your body is not wired for for appropriate calorie intake. Trust me, I know, right? When when you're at a buffet, you are wired to eat as much of that as you can. And I, I don't think I've made that any better on myself uh, throughout <laughs> my life because we right. didn't know when we would be able to eat. And so the process of becoming a a healthy person is learning to have a good relationship with food, learning to be able to say, okay, what do I need to eat Um, instead of what does my body want me to eat? And the same thing is true when it comes to truth, to be able to say, you know, I'm having this thought right now. Is that really a rational thought? Do I have evidence for that? Do I know that that's real? Or have I actually woken up a thousand times in the middle of the night and heard those creaks and there were no murderers? I'm probably fine. It's probably not that big of a deal. Being able to have those conversations is really, really important. Um, and so I, I, I think good parenting is almost a form of cognitive behavioral therapy where we're teaching our kids how to think well, how to be deliberate, how to be skeptical on some things, how to be um, deliberate on others. Um, and to be clear, I, I have been very skeptical of my own faith. I've, I've turned the hardest lens I know how to put on my own faith, and my faith has come out stronger for it. I'm okay if other yeah. people haven't. And if that's their their choice, that's fine. That's been my experience. Um, and I, I have felt often that I'm walking up to that cliff and, and taking a leap over. Um, 
And every time I do, I feel like I come back knowing just a little bit more and feeling a little bit more sure of, of, of where I am and what I believe. So, um, yeah. my kids, I hope, I hope they, they love science and I hope they, they love truth and they are raised on the stories of, of people who paid the price to, to bring us that truth. Um, and I also hope that they realize that, that critical thinking sometimes means being willing to say, you know, I, I don't believe in that. I'm not sure there's something about it and I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about that that doesn't quite feel right to me. And then give yourself time until you can articulate where you'll draw the line on that. Yeah, that was beautifully said. I really loved what you said about skepticism. I think there's a, a devotional that was given by Elder Uchtdorf in 2013. He says, part of our problem in the quest for truth is that human wisdom has disappointed us so often. We have so many examples of things that mankind once knew were true, but have since been proven false. For example, in spite of one time overwhelming consensus, the earth isn't flat. The stars don't revolve around the earth. Eating a tomato will not cause instant death. And of course, man actually can fly, even break the sound barrier. And what you said reminds me of that because it's kind of a, in telling stories to your children about people that have died uh, for truth, but not only died for truth, but but died because they were overturning a, you know, a, a wrong that was so widely held um, that it actually led to their death. I think that's so interesting. And I think, I think also that helped me think a little bit more about, and, and this probably isn't true for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are really searching for truth, um, but there's a lot of pressure um, out there, especially for young adults and teens, um, where they feel like, well, everybody uh, is going this direction and it really is hard to stand against uh, a huge wave that you feel may knock you down or, you know, and maybe your irrational thought is that if you stand up for truth, maybe that wave is going to kill you. You know, maybe you won't, you won't survive socially or emotionally standing up for what you believe is true. Anyway, that, that just a couple of thoughts that came to mind. I think it's really, really, really important to, to help children and teens and young adults and ourselves realize that, standing up for truth, you know, even against the, the waves that'll beat on us, um, is far worth, uh, the price that is paid. Well, let me, let me, let me dive in on that just really quick. It's, it's interesting because I, one of the things that I told my, my youth group tonight was, um, I think sometimes we wonder as I was praying about that, that opportunity to, to talk to them, I asked myself, what can I say that would build in them, um, powerful and deep testimonies? And, uh, as I prayed about it, um, the impression that I got was that we tend to think about testimony in terms of, you just need to ask enough. And if you ask long enough and you, you knock on the door, and by the way, I think that is part of it. It's, it's, it's the parable of the, um, of the widow and the judge, right? And she keeps knocking on the door and finally goes, okay, I don't, I don't even care what your issue is. I just want you to go away. Right. It's, it's, it's that, that story. I love that one from, from the new Testament. Um, but I think there are two other pieces um, one is, is, um, humility, the ability to say that I don't know at all. Um, by the way, you need to not have so much humility that you become a total nihilist where you think that there is no such thing as truth, where nothing exists and you can't even know. And th that's also dangerous. But if you can be just 1% more than that, if you can say, we really don't understand how little we know, right? That in 10,000 years, we're going to look at us and look at people in the dark ages as basically the same, Right. Uh, one of the images that's in my mind is um, that we're all a bunch of kind we're, we're all a bunch of uh, four year olds and there's one kindergartner in the group and we're all playing in the sand castles in the in the in the sand pit in the in the front yard. Um, and and one of the kindergartners says, well, I know so much more than you. Right. And, and, and the humility to realize we none of us know very much. The, the, the universe is filled with things that we don't understand. So the first thing I would say is have that humility, understand that we're not wired for truth, but that we can still get there. The second piece, though, is courage. If I'm looking at God and I'm asking him for more knowledge, I bet that one of the things he would ask is, OK, if I give him this knowledge, will he stand up for it ever after? Will he will he treat it as sacred? And the way that we know that, by the way, is whether we treat as sacred the knowledge we already have. And these can be very simple things. They don't even have to be religious. If you want a greater testimony of something, ask yourself, when's the last time I bore testimony of something costly? And it doesn't have to be religious, like I say. A simple example here. I, I did not view it as my prerogative or, or appropriate for me as a, as a public school employee to preach. I think it would have been very, very inappropriate. At the same time, um, all of the evidence is not exactly unclear 
on how important it is to have families partnering with schools in order for their students to do better. And some of the things that are in there are provocative. There are things like, hey, two parent families who love each other are better for kids. This is, this is not something on which the research literature is agnostic. It's not like, well, some people find this and like, it's, it's very clear, at least the, the, all of the research that I've read now, I'm not a family therapist, you know, I'm not a, um, th- this is not my area of expertise. I don't see a lot of nuance here. I see a lot of people trying to not offend when they present the research findings, but the research findings are quite clear. Um, I think that one of the, the simplest examples was when, I, was when I realized I don't want to offend. I still need to stand up and say, hey, and I, I didn't say this in public schools, like I said, um, but I did say, hey, there are things you can do that will help your your children. Um, here's something that I did say, I, I guess I should say in public. I didn't talk about divorce because that's that's complicated and thorny. Um, what I did say was there are things you can do for your children right now that will benefit them in the long run. And we do not want anybody to feel judged or left out or excluded, but we do want to talk about what those things are because we are partners. You are on our team and we are on your team and we want to work together to make your students the, give them the best possible life. And so that means things like bedtimes. And that means things like, you know, sometimes it's a little bit young for them to have a smartphone. I'm not your therapist and you don't have to listen to anything that I say, but I am going to actually yeah. say it. And just taking that step, all of a sudden, I felt like, I mean, a buddy of mine said this. He said, once you've been ratioed on Twitter, you realize that it's just not that scary, right? I mean, it it, it really isn't. I mean, it, it feels like a, a Benedict burning at the stake. And then you realize you made like 50 people mad. What? Like, it's Twitter. Who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. But, and it was, in all seriousness, it was funny because the other day I was, I was in a bit of a Twitter kerfuffle. And I remember somebody saying something like, I can't believe people like this even exist or something like that, that think different from me. And I kind of laughed and just ignored it. But then I saw somebody else saying the same thing. And it was over people's opinions on the new Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power show. Right. It's like, this is the, <laughs> this is just normal. This is how, like all of us are like right. amped up all the time. We start our debates turned all the way up to 11. It's just so crazy to me. Right. And crazy. so once you realize people are going to be mad, don't worry about it. You need to stand up for what you know to be true. And if you do that and you have that integrity, I do think that that will plant in your heart a love for truth and God will be much more willing to, to whisper the secrets of the universe to you because he knows that he can trust you with them. Um, and if you don't, um, the, the scriptures are very clear. From him who hath, even that which he hath shall be taken away. But to him who hath, um, what is it? Him who hath and seeketh more, um, shall, the light will grow brighter and brighter till the perfect day. I think I'm mixing up two scriptures, but the yeah. basic point is if he gives you something and you don't do, if you don't treasure it, you're going to lose even that. On the other hand, if you treasure it and you treat it sacredly and you ask for more, you'll continue to gain more and more. Now, this is an interesting idea. This is a down escalator and you have to keep climbing. But if you keep climbing, it's going to be a really good journey. But the second you stop, right? Uh, eternal knowledge, the important stuff has a very short shelf life. The testimony that you have today that feels strong and bulletproof, it doesn't last unless you're adding to it and you're, you're, you're making it a deeper foundation. I think that's a really, really important concept. If we're not always learning and growing and, and becoming better, then, then we stagnate. So yeah. those are a few of my thoughts. Yeah. And I think also too, when you were talking, it just kind of made me think about also just going back to what you said about kind of the you know, pitting two virtues against each other, um, in terms of like courage. And I think it's, it's a lot easier to stand up for truth when you realize that you really don't have to give up compassion for truth. You don't have to give up love for truth. It's not like this, this laundry list of, of good qualities that you're, you know, putting under the basket because you chose truth. Um, I love that you said that you can have both of those things, Um, and having both of them is actually where you will find the most truth. Um, you know, if you delete all these other ones, um, then, and it's, it's the, you end up with the same issue. Um, Well, it's so funny because when I, when I put my masculinity article out, there were a bunch of people who were saying, why can't you just have compassion? Why can't you just, and I was like, no, 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 I I hear you, but this is what we have become. We've become such low resolution thinkers that it's either I'm on this side or I'm on that side. Everything is a two-party debate. And by the way, most of the time you can tell people's politics, right? Not all the time, but it's like, look, the, the left and the right is compassion versus order and justice. And like, this is like deep and archetypal and like, you know, symbolic and stuff. Yeah. And when you, when you say, hey, maybe we can have a college debt program 
that both is compassionate and also encourages the right behavior and 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 also reforms colleges who are i think part of the problem all of a sudden people go oh yeah. who who is this wizard who 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 has learned of these deep <laughs> ways you know you you sound like a genius when all you're trying to do is say hey right. both of these values are good there's a, there's a great book yeah. on on civility and politics the three languages of politics um by arnold kling um and he basically it's a very short book and i think it's free at least it was at one point he says when you talk to people of a different political persuasion learn what motivates them in their values. So if it's somebody on the left, the question is, is compassion um, and inclusion. Those are the things that really matter. On the right, it's things like um, civilization versus barbarism. Um, the left, it's oppressor. That's what it is. It's oppressor versus oppressed. That's the left. For the right, it's civilization versus barbarism. And for the libertarians, it's freedom versus, um, versus oppression and, and, and whatnot. Once you can at least speak in terms of the other person, all of a sudden, all of these doors open because you can understand, okay, if, if you're a libertarian, I'm not going to try and convince you um, that it's about civilization versus barbarism. What I can try to say is, oh, what I'm hearing you say is that you care a lot about liberty and freedom. How can I speak to that issue? How can I speak to those values? Which, by the way, everybody kind of agrees that liberty is an important thing. We may draw it at different points. Yeah. But right, but I think right. that that's really valuable. So this idea of of pairing these these values and and, and pushing on them this way, um, I, I don't want anybody thinking that that means that you have to pick one over the other. Most of the time, there's a way to at least respect both of them, even if you come out disagreeing on on, on where you draw the line. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think we've talked about some pretty awesome stuff. Um, I've just been I've been uplifted, um, and I've learned a lot of things. I think before we before we close up, I just wanted to read just a small section of your article on Public Square magazine, just the very last little bit. But I really, I really, really loved this part. Um, I really loved the whole thing. If you, if you're listening and you haven't read this article, um, you can just go to publicsquaremag.org, um, and it's called "You Are Safe in My Classroom." Um, it's a really, a really great article, well written. It says, and as to my students, I want to say one more thing. I believe you are a child of God. You are a being of divine parentage, born with the destiny of glory. I will only ever affirm your true identity, which is a beloved child of heavenly parents and a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will always urge you to be true to that identity and let it predominate in your life. There are two things that I will hold to, treating all as Christ would and standing unapologetically for church doctrine without even a hint of advocacy for things that do not conform to gospel standards. So consider this to be my own little banner, flag, or symbol. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will welcome all, and I will stand for truth. And I think that really says beautifully what we were talking about, the kind of the, you can have truth, and you can have compassion. Those can go hand in hand. So thanks for writing that. That was uh, had a deep impact on me. Um, if you have any closing thoughts. No, it's very kind words. I I... It was funny when I wrote it, I didn't think about it, but I, I couldn't have because it hadn't happened yet. But now I think about President Nelson's invitation for us to identify primarily as children of God first, children of the covenant and then disciples of Jesus Christ. I think he said in much more eloquent terms of the feeling that I was having, which is all of those other things are wonderful. But the first and most important thing that I will see in you is that you were a child of God. And I think that that is the identity that is most important to me. Um, I'll end with just this this one quick thought. Um, I've talked a little bit about how important it is to prize truth and how um, it doesn't always come and how we need to to teach our children to 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 to, to prize truth and to understand that it's real, but also to reject um, falsehood. And the thought that's on my mind tonight is there's this old myth, this old story, I shouldn't call it a myth, this old story um, uh, where um, Satan is 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 running amok. And the devil comes down to earth and he's, he, you know, he, he's, he's gotten wise. He's figured out that he can't just tell lies because people don't buy those. So he, he tells half truths and distorted realities. And he's, he's just getting all the false doctrine out there, all manner of false doctrine everywhere. And somebody walks up to him and says, so how's it going? I've, I've noticed what you're up to. I'm, I'm just curious. How are things going? And he says, oh, it's going great. I mean, I'm, I'm just selling them on all sorts of stuff and they're, they're buying it. They're gobbling it up left and right. It's, it's been really great, except that man does not seem to believe what is being taught. I think that that is the highest compliment that anybody could be paid, is to be able to see the difference between tr truth and error.
and say, I will find any glimmer of truth I can from any source that I can. But there are also times when I need to be able to say, hey, there's a line I have to draw here. I don't agree with everything. I'm going to do everything I can to be as 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 kind or compassionate or whatever the virtue might be. Maybe maybe it's not even to do with that issue, right? Um, but there is also a point at which I have to be able to finally put my hands up and say, I just don't agree with that. And I think that's a matter of integrity. I, I, I like the idea um, that sometimes sometimes we wake up um, and the devil curses a little bit because I, I remember the the, the joke um, that that um, Satan gets angry when when Elder Holland gets out of bed in the morning, right? And he, he curses under his <laughs> breath, right? May we all be disturbers of his kingdom. I think that was once a Chuck Norris joke, but I like it better. I like it better when it's Elder. Holland. <laughs> um, may we be disturbers of his kingdom that are skeptical enough not to buy hook, line, and sinker all of the things we believe. And this is easy for me because I'm a teacher and there's nothing that teachers know better than fads because every few years there's a new fad that teachers are supposed to be doing and there's a new way of teaching and a new curriculum and buy this new thing. It's research-based and no, it's not. And, you know, there's a new, there's a new school building outlay and everybody will be in open classrooms. It's a disaster, right? And, and we're, we're just very, because of that, we have to be skeptical understand that truth is out there. Truth is is beautiful and precious and rare. And that if you want to seek truth, it takes two things, the courage and the humility to believe in things that are true and the courage and humility to, to not believe in things that are not true. So hopefully that's an okay note to end on. Yeah, that's perfect. So thank you so much, Benjamin, for spending some time with us tonight. Hopefully we can have you on again in the future. I'm sure we will. And uh, just another reminder if anybody out there has not read this article, it's, it's a great one, publicsquaremag.org. Um, and then also Ben's podcast, Radical Civility. Um, I assume they can just find that. Anywhere you get your podcast. And I need to, I, I should warn them that I am not putting them out very regularly right now because my wife has, has put it in very direct terms. I have a dissertation to finish. So, and I really yeah, like you get wife, your dissertation so finished. <laughs> I am trying my best. I love the podcast. It's super fun. But if if you don't hear from me, they are still coming. I'm just I'm just going as as fast as I can on other projects. So just check periodically there, and and uh, when they come in, you can enjoy them. That's right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Uh, we'll close up. We again appreciate to have you on, and uh, and hopefully we'll hear from you again in the future. Lovely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yep. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Raising Family Podcast. This episode was produced by Carol Rice. Our research coordinator is Angela Fallentine. Audio was edited and mixed by John Wright. The Raising Family Podcast is brought to you by thefamilyproclamation.org.